0: Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with
1: Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Yeah, don't do the Great White North song at the beginning.
0: I promised Luke that I wouldn't play the Great White North song that I play on any Canada themed episode, uh, so I'm definitely not going to drop it in right here. But we do have some Canadian content on this episode, and I'd actually like to kick things off with the death of a great Canadian artist this week, Michael Snow. Uh, If you're not familiar with the name, Luke, you're definitely familiar with some of his work. In my world, uh, he's well known as an experimental filmmaker. He made a film in 1967 called Wavelength, which was a 45 minute experimental film. It showed a slow zoom from one end of a room to another with this strange like howling sound in the background and a couple of things interjecting into the frame at a couple of different moments. Doesn't sound very appealing, I know, the way I describe it, but it is a landmark of experimental cinema and a really bizarre hypnotic viewing experience, especially if you can see it projected. But he was a multi-hyphenate. He was a visual artist, a jazz musician, did a lot of jazz piano, uh, sculpture, photography. Uh, you have definitely seen at the Sky Dome, also known as the Rogers Center, our baseball stadium here in town, his enormous sculpture on the side of the building of the fans, you know, the bronze sculpture of the fans oh, sitting yeah. in the balcony. He also did that wonderful installation at the Eaton Center, our big mall in the city. The, the geese, uh, I believe it's actually known as flight stop and in addition to being a very famous art installation in toronto that was the subject of a very famous court case as well which was uh, an important case on moral rights in canada the right of the author michael snow created this installation and then in 1981 during the christmas season the people who ran the eden center put little christmas bows on all of the geese And he sued because he said that that compromised the integrity of the artwork. And the judge agreed. The ruling said that it, quote, distorted, mutilated, or otherwise modified the artwork. And I know that it was quite a divisive ruling. There certainly certainly were people and probably still are no shortage of people who would say, well, you know, he created this artwork for, you know, the Eaton Center and uh, they own it and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, what world would you rather live in? Wouldn't you rather live in the world where, like, you can't buy the Mona Lisa and then paint a mustache on it?
1: We, we should probably describe the uh, the exhibit a little bit for people who aren't familiar. So the Eaton Center, as Will said, you know, it's it's the big sort of downtown shopping mall in, uh, in Toronto. And, um, you know, it's a shopping mall. It's got four levels, but it does have a lot of uh, natural light because there's this big skylight for a roof. And so that's where the exhibit is, correct? It's all the geese sort of lining the skylight.
0: They're all held on strings. It's like a flight pattern basically yeah
1: so it is it is unusually elegant and quite grand in scale for an otherwise uh, profane space like the eaton center
0: and you know they wanted to make it profane too and incredibly you know this legal system made them stop (laughs) anyway some years ago i think like 2015 or so i remember at the toronto film festival seeing jonas mikas who has passed on since then but he was in his 90s at the time And he was a great experimental filmmaker and writer and poet, was introducing a film, and Michael Snow was in the audience. And Jonas Mikus, in you know his grand way, said something like, "Toronto is the city of Michael Snow." And I remember, I first of all, I remember feeling very privileged to to see that interaction. You felt
1: a pang of pride.
0: Yeah, well, I felt a pang of a starstruckness to mm-hmm. sort of like be in the audience and be able to see, you mm-hmm. know, Michael Snow a couple of rows behind me. But also, I, I felt, and I still feel a little bit of like. God, I wish this actually was the city of Michael Snow. And I don't know how this quite fits into this. Uh, Maybe it doesn't. But I do want to read a little bit from an article on BlogTO today called, People in Toronto are calling out TIFF for partnering with the group Privatizing Ontario Place. So TIFF is the Toronto International Film Festival, our biggest arts organization. Ontario Place, it was a publicly owned park slash, um, well, theme park, theme park, basically on the waterfront. And it's lain dormant for many years now, like probably almost 20 years at this point. It's
1: I I visited as a kid, but that must have been in the nineties when it was still going. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Me too. Um, it says here, the impending revitalization of Ontario place has become an extremely hot button issue in Toronto, where residents are infuriated that the 155 acre waterfront property, which has been largely out of use for more than a decade, is being taken over by private entities rather than turned into a fully public space. As the plans for the site unfurl, people continue to take issue with the lack of public input on the project, especially by Therm Group, The Australian company behind the anchoring feature of the attraction, a sprawling luxury spa with water slides, botanical gardens, saunas and more, which will charge over $40 admission per person. It will also almost definitely include a giant parking lot, if Therm's other locations worldwide are any indication. Later on, it says... And
1: by the way, the provincial government's very involved in this, so this is going to be a private space that will very likely cost a whole bunch of public money to set this up. So it's something that was a public space that, with the use of public money, partly, you know, is going to be privatized and become a sort of, you know, luxury playground for people who can afford it.
0: Later in the article, it says, Toronto International Film Festival has launched an initiative called Cinematic Cities in which it and Therm Group will, quote work together to celebrate the importance of art, build stronger communities through the shared experience of film, and promote the role of art and film in creating more human cities, unquote. To do this, over 10 years, the two will host a TIFF X-Therm talk series about, quote,
1: how art and film
0: promote the holistic growth of healthy, engaged cities and citizenship, unquote.
1: <laughs> we're, like, we're like one adjective away from like synergize or innovate <laughs> there
0: a cinematic arts installation and will work to bring film into communities that may not be able to access typical TIFF programming in other new ways (laughs) Uh, so a lot of people are upset there's a a tweet here by one fellow reacting to TIFF's announcement that says this piece is so weird it feels like TIFF have agreed to run propaganda for Therm for the next 10 years the images are even Therm's brand watermarked promo images for Ontario Place what's going on uh, so a lot of unhappiness. The the former mayor of Toronto, David Miller, has come out against TIFF for this. I'll just say, you know, if TIFF really wants to write this, they should invite me to introduce a movie somewhere. But they uh, they never have done that. So <laughs> do they really care about the community? I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, I don't know what a Michael Snow city looks like, but um, I, I don't think it's this.
1: Well, I was not aware of this story, but that is so uh, depressing to hear that. And it's so emblematic. I mean, a version of this is, you know, happened everywhere, is happening everywhere. We have an institution like TIFF, which is... You know, one of uh, Toronto is one of Canada's major cultural institutions, and the market has just penetrated everything now such that, you know, not only is the money of major corporations in this case, this, uh, you know, Australian development company or whatever it is, not only do these companies have their financial footprints all over major cultural institutions and everything else, but now they're, you know, intruding into the public communications of uh, things like TIFF as well, such that. You know, in that statement you read, it's like you know, arts and culture are brought to you by you know, uh, yeah. you know, like brought to you by our sponsors, and then you know, then there's all this like paternalist language about like, and you know, they're helping bring arts and culture to communities that don't necessarily aren't able to access <laughs> them, you know, and it's just like something that should be shared. I mean, by definition, you know, culture, and then you know, I you're talking as well about Ontario Place, like an, an erstwhile public space that's being reimagined as a you know. A private one and a site of profit the inegalitarian spirit of that you know comes through quite overtly in uh stuff like the thing you read it's like in order to access culture now which i mean god we're using to, to use the the language of access you know it's like to talk about culture in the way that american politicians talk about like affordable accessible healthcare or something like that to talk about it as if, like, it's only because of, like, the beneficence of this, uh, you know, <laughs> of, like, private capital that you're <laughs> that you're able to, like, go see a movie or something. Oh, it's so morbid. Well, I didn't even know you were going to talk about this, but, uh, I mean, it seems like we could use a little bit of the spirit of the film that we watched uh, this week, which was a remarkable Quebec film from the early 1970s by the Quebecois director Gilles Gru. The film is called 24 Hours or More. It was filmed almost exactly a year after the 1970 October crisis in Quebec, which I suppose you can consider this discussion a sort of spiritual successor to the episode we did, which was called Black October, in which we talked about Robin Spry's film um, dealing with the October crisis. If you want to rise, we will observe a minute of silence for those who are dead fighting for the slave class.
0: Now, just for a little context, because we have a lot of international listeners, could you just as briefly as possible summarize the October crisis?
1: Right. So the October crisis involved the kidnapping of uh, several officials, including uh, James Cross, the British Trade Commissioner in Quebec, and also a cabinet minister in Quebec named Pierre Laporte, who was murdered by this group, the, uh, the FLQ, the Front de Libération du Québec. This was a very very small and kind of vanguardist group, but tensions were simmering kind of more widely across Quebec in the wake of the Quiet Revolution, the awakening of modern nationalist sentiment in Quebec. At the behest of the government of Quebec, the federal government under Pierre Trudeau legislated something called the War Measures Act, which, you know, at, th- at this point in Canada, there was no embedded Bill of Rights. There was no constitutionally enshrined, I should say, Bill of Rights. There was something called the Bill of Rights, but it was statutory. So you could just, if you were the federal government, you could just like turn it off, basically. You could say, uh, uh, well, uh, we're in a state of exception, so rights uh, do not exist. Um, and so the federal government, with the support of most of the Canadian parliament, aside from 16 members of the New Democratic Party, supported uh, the imposition of the War Measures Act, which basically suspended habeas corpus in Quebec. Um, now, this led to the largest peacetime arrests in Canadian history, uh, at least up until the G20 was held in Toronto in uh, 2010. It was an example of pretty uh, grotesque state repression, albeit in response to a real event. But, you know, thousands of people were locked up without charge without cause there's a story I actually read I'm not sure if I shared this on our October crisis episode but I was reading the uh, memoir of the late Canadian socialist James Laxer recently and he recounts a story of uh, some friends of his parents his parents had been members of the Communist Party and uh, they had this friend in Montreal who was uh, an art historian or something and he had all these books on cubism and you know I can't remember if he was even a socialist but uh, he knew the laxers so probably but anyway the police show up during the October crisis, um, you know, empowered by the War Measures Act to just sort of pick up whoever they wanted. And they didn't arrest him, but they found his books on cubism and they thought that they'd found a Havana connection. So they confiscated <laughs> all of his books on on cubism. The crisis was also kind of seized on by authorities, uh, you know, as part of, there was this kind of wider crackdown on um, the organized left, obviously. It was also seized on to, you know, essentially rig the election, the mayoral election in Montreal for Mayor Jean Drapeau. It was a uh, a tremendously repressive episode that is nonetheless remembered. I mean, you know, I would love to know if there's anybody from Quebec or who grew up in Quebec listening, I would love to know, you know, how the events of October 1970 are remembered, you know, how, how they're publicly remembered in Quebec, because in English Canada, I think they're most synonymous with this just watch me moment that Pierre Trudeau had, you know, Pierre Trudeau obviously was himself a product of the Quebec intelligentsia, and we know it was a prime minister from Quebec, but in this speech, Trudeau is, uh, you know, is defending the imposition of the War Measures Act to a journalist. And, you know, you're taught about this moment in, you know, if you if you go to public school in English Canada, anyway, you're taught about this moment. And I don't know, it was always uh, rendered to me as this was Pierre Trudeau being, you know, really cool and defiant in the face of this idiot journalist who was asking him, like, why are there tanks rolling into the streets of Montreal? And why does Ottawa look like a war zone? But, you know, instead of remembering it for what it was, which was this pretty grotesque suspension of civil liberties, it's remembered because uh, Pierre Trudeau gave this, you know, epic speech where he said, you know, he's asked, how far would you go? And he says, just watch me. I think in the kind of society that you yeah, live well, in. There's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed. But it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to... Uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of uh, of a. At, at any element. cost, at any cost. How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me.
0: Now, this film, 24 Hours or More by Gilles Gois, was released in 1973, but filmed in the autumn of 1971 and is a kaleidoscopic portrait of life under consumer capitalism in Quebec at the time. It encompasses, according to its opening minutes, 56 topics, although I was not uh, carefully keeping track. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. The most obvious comparison that one would make is somebody like Godard but you know there were filmmakers all over the world whether it's Miklos Janshko in Hungary or Global Rocha in Brazil or Nagisa Oshima in Japan it felt like at this particular moment in history the 1960s and 70s there was this massive worldwide at least among some filmmakers interest in trying to create a form of cinema that could express revolutionary ideas cinematically this push against a bourgeois corrupt capitalist form and uh thank god we don't do that anymore you know
1: Yeah, I mean, 24 Hours or More uh, was an incredible film. I was familiar with it and I wanted to watch it for some time, but I never actually seen it until today. And I mean, it is absolutely remarkable just as a piece of filmmaking, even if you're not aware of the of the kind of wider context of, you know, Quebec society at the time and what was going on. Um, I think it's still very much worth a watch. And you can watch it, by the way, maybe we'll include the link on the National Film Board of Canada website streaming for free. Hopefully that's available to people outside of Canada as well, though you can probably always use a VPN. The film captures just beautifully, you know, the revolutionary sentiment that was, you know, simmering beneath everything a year after the October crisis. I mean, there's a remarkable scene at the beginning in which a number of uh, prominent Quebec trade union leaders from the time, including Michel Chartrand and Louis Laberge, are holding a rally in what looks to me like the Paul Survey Arena. You know, I mean, it looks like it's in Montreal. I can't think of another venue that's this large. So representatives from uh, the biggest trade union federations in Quebec. All
0: three of them, the CSN, the FTQ, and the CEQ.
1: That's right. And Michel Chartrand uh, is giving this a- incredibly impassioned speech, which is invoking famous episodes of Quebec's labor history, notably the uh, the 1949 asbestos strike, but is also talking about worker struggles outside of Quebec, the Winnipeg General Strike. I'm forgetting the the specific action by British coal miners he mentioned, but it's this kind of sweeping speech calling for working-class solidarity, which is, you know, nevertheless being given through the prism of Quebec nationalism, you know, as it existed at the time. One of the very interesting things you see in this film is the complicated relationship between the Quebec nationalism, which was very much interwoven with socialist politics, and the kind of internationalist and universalist message, which is inherent in the socialist ideal. So at this rally, you know, you hear this language of uh, working-class internationalism and, and militancy, but then it's directed at, you know, like the bourgeois middle-class nationalists in Quebec and the liberal government in Quebec of Bourassa and its collaborationism with the Ottawa regime and things like that. It's uh, it's really quite remarkable footage that's captured here. Louis LeBerge, the longtime head of the uh, FTQ, Gets the crowd. Uh, This might have been my favorite moment in the film. It's not even particular. There's nothing even particularly profound about it. I just thought it was remarkable where he gets the crowd singing this kind of, and it's like this this song about getting like hit in the head with a truncheon by a cop. And in every verse, you're getting hit with an additional truncheon. And like this entire crowd of what looks like about 25,000 people, they all know the song and they're all they're all singing it. Uh, It's fantastic.
0: This scene is immediately followed by a few others where you get a sense of material conditions in Quebec at the time. We get a tour of what the film says is a typical Quebec dwelling, which is, you know, a small apartment with two or three rooms. There's a scene at a factory that makes supplies for the military where the hourly salary is $1.60 and they make maybe $50 or $60 a week. We hear from another guy working at either that factory or maybe another one who talks about how, you know, he just breathed in adhesive fumes for three straight years. And, uh, you know, he never lost any energy, but he wasn't able to sleep when he got back home. He
1: He talks about how the bosses pay someone. There's some middle manager whose job is to just sit there and gets paid to watch him breathe in these dangerous fumes all day the textile worker whoever he is young guy in the uh, in the earlier scene you mentioned jill's grew asked about his wages and working conditions then he asked him you know what his dreams are and he says well i'd really like to play music but i can't and he says why and he says "Well, just..." I don't have enough money I literally can't afford a musical instrument the film gets at this same idea again and again the point is not just that capitalist society is alienating or that it's oppressive or that it's exploitative you know you work for a dollar 60 an hour or whatever uh, this textile worker says it may be all of those things but also there's an affirmative message contained uh, within that which is that human freedom as a whole is being suppressed people's creative agency is being taken from them the time that they They might spend uh, doing anything, spending time with their families, enjoying their lives, reading a book, playing musical instruments, perhaps doing absolutely nothing at all that's being taken from them as well. And instead, they're forced to engage in a daily battle for subsistence. while the system continually makes even that struggle more and more difficult. Now, for a little bit of wider context, I mean, this is 1971. So, um, you know, Quebec is not immune, the Quebec economy is not immune to what's afflicting the global economy around this time. There's widespread inflation. The early 1970s is when we really see the beginnings and the first stirrings of what becomes the neoliberal project. It's kind of, a, a I guess people didn't realize it at the time, but it's the end of sort of post-war affluence in a big way. It's in the late 1960s or early 1970s, I'm forgetting, where basically prices uh, skyrocket and economic growth stalls. And then, you know, in Quebec, the Bourassa government, and then, you know, nationally in Canada, the federal government under Pierre Trudeau begins to implement proto-versions of, you know, the types of economic policies that just, you know, define our existence today. So they begin tightening the screws of fiscal and monetary policy they try to tackle inflation basically by lowering people's living standards. So very similar to what central banks around the world are are doing or are about to do now. You know, they're, they're basically deliberately trying to trigger a recession. The idea that if you restore competition by making people's wages lower, the goal is to reduce wages and also throw huge numbers of people out of work, because if they're not in work, they're not earning wages and they're not spending. And so the idea is that it'll bring down inflation. At the same time, you have, you know, the idea that public spending is driving inflation, that becomes really part of the fiscal orthodoxy, and so public spending starts being cut. And so, you know, this is happening everywhere throughout the 1970s in Canada, It's particularly acute in Quebec. And actually, a few years after this, I suppose five years after this film came out when the Parti Quebecois finally came to power. I mean, that did represent a climax of sorts for the process that began with the Quiet Revolution and the awakening of, uh, you know, modern Quebec nationalism. But it also had a lot to do, I mean, the PQ also won the election because the Bourassa government had moved in a right-wing direction when it came to the economy. And of course, the other big component in this project, this kind of suite of economic policies, was trying to reduce the power of organized labor. And because this film was shot shortly after the October crisis, the state and the police have very recently been implicated in you know, the suppression of the trade union movement. Now, to set the stage a little bit for this kind of wider economic context we're discussing here, I want to read a little bit from an excellent book by a Canadian scholar who's a friend of mine, uh, Christo Ivalis. It's called The Constant Liberal Pierre Trudeau Organized Labor in the Canadian Social Democratic Left. You know, um, so, this is, a, I think, probably the definitive study of Pierre Trudeau. And, you know, if you learn about Pierre Trudeau inside Canada or outside of Canada, you know, you learn about you know his uh, his conception of federalism. And, you know, there's a million books about Pierre Trudeau's, uh, you know, the charge. Of rights and freedoms, it was brought in in the early uh, 1980s. You learn about how he dated Barbara Streisand, and he was an international sex symbol, and he did a pirouette behind the Queen—all that stuff. Something that you were just not taught about Pierre Trudeau, which I don't think I adequately understood until I read Christo's book, is just what a you know an ideological conservative he was when it came to the economy. You know, I, I was doing some research for something else recently, and I found a newspaper article about Pierre Trudeau's campaign for the Liberal leadership in 1967. Trudeau was justice minister and he ran to succeed Lester Pearson as a liberal leader and prime minister. And, you know, this was really the beginnings of Trudeau mania, which was sort of Canada's version of JFK or something. It was not as sometimes depicted, this kind of, you know, thing that swept across all of society. I mean, there were particular socioeconomic uh, niches and, and income brackets where I think it was a little more acute than some others. But at the height of this, all this enthusiasm about this transformational leader, you know, I found this newspaper article where it's Pierre Trudeau and he's blasting like this culture of entitled and welfareism, which is making people lazy. I mean, it's actually pretty unusual rhetoric for the late 1960s. Christo has a chapter in his book on inflation and wage and price controls in the 1960s. And by the way, the, the book, in, in addition to being a, a study of Pierre Trudeau, is also a study of the Canadian social democratic left and labor movement's response to Pierre Trudeau. And, and that is another you know, place where the book really shines. Christo did a lot of reading of trade union journals. No one had ever conducted a system study of them before. I mean it's quite remarkable you know in the in the mid-1970s trade union density was much higher but you know these unions, including uh, the Quebec unions that we see depicted in the film, they had these big research departments and they were issuing detailed policy alternatives in the face of this more right-wing direction many governments were pursuing. One of the things that Gilles uh, Gru takes aim at in this film is the kind of paternalism of the ruling class in Quebec um, and the Canadian ruling class at the time. And um, just as an example of that paternalism and of, I guess the social attitudes that were running through the economic policies that were ascendant at the time, uh, a passage from Christo's book, which deals with this exactly, has always stuck with me. And so I'm going to read a little bit from Christo and then I'm going to read uh, from this interview in 1972 that uh, that Trudeau gave. Christo writes in an interview in 1968 on runaway expectations Trudeau outlined his worries about an increasingly connected and purposeful generation whose desires and ambitions comprised quote the great threat or the great challenge to organize society. These desires were rooted in a post-war world where everything education sustenance liberty employment and equality was deemed possible. Trudeau thought that these demands imposed a burden on taxpayers and a yearned for the quote, conventional wisdoms of the past, that wealth and progress must come from capitalist ingenuity and profit and that Canada had reached the limit of what was possible in terms of social welfare. Stemming the tide of selfishness would be possible only if quote, the revolution of rising expectations was defeated by making it clear that quote, there is a limit and this has to be instilled in the psychology of the people. By the way, I brought this interview of Trudeau's to the attention of uh, a friend of mine uh, who knew him, who very quickly pointed out the irony of uh, you know, Trudeau, a guy who inherited millions of dollars from his dad, uh, speaking this way. The expectation that life could improve regardless of increased profitability was absurd. In 1972, Trudeau reiterated his view that inflation was perpetuated via, quote, great expectations being created by the very nature of the society we live in. People are asking for more in every area, whether it be for welfare or for the farmers or for the industrial workers or for the managers or for the entrepreneurs. Health, education, people want more and I think this is a political reality which has overtaken most Western societies. I think it came with the advent of television and mass communications. It's perhaps too much information of what the Joneses are doing and what we must do to live up to them, and this has caused these great inflationary pushes. So I think that's a very fascinating comment. I mean, you know, it's a reactionary and paternalistic one, but I find it very interesting that for a member of the Quebec uh, intelligentsia like Pierre Trudeau, he was able to look at the suite of things he mentioned, you know, this this culture of rising expectations, which to me is just... I mean, that should be the direction of travel in a democratic society. People should expect more. People expected more for a reason. A series of institutions had been created through popular struggle and because of the experience of the Second World War and a number of other things which, for the first time in history, uh, were beginning to create a kind of broadly shared uh, prosperity and which by the 1960s were leading to things like the New Left, uh, the kind of radicalized student movement, you know, the people coming of age as part of, you know, the first generation that had come of age in the wake of everything I just mentioned. And instead of wanting less, people wanted more. They started asking questions about the society around them. They took on a a thicker conception of what human freedom might mean and what it might look like. They started sympathizing with people around the world who were engaged in other kinds of struggles and expressing solidarity towards them. I mean, that's something that runs through 24 hours or more very strongly as well. There are sections which deal with, uh, you know, the Vietnam War. There's a speech of Fred Hampton's that's quoted. There are newspaper headlines quoted about the suppression of the civil rights movement. There's a reference to Palestinian liberation. All of these things, uh, which Trudeau, I suppose, is indirectly alluding to uh, in the passage I just read, they define the radicalism of the 1960s and the horizons of democratic possibility that it opened up. But there was a cast of elites who, uh, you know, I think it comes through very strongly in that passage, you know, they weren't, they weren't excited by this. They thought it was not even a problem. This was the great challenge of post-war democratic societies was how do you tamp down political radicalism? And how do you tamp down the expectations of working and middle class people that, you know, their paychecks are going to get a little bigger each year, they're going to be able to expect, uh, you know, public goods like health and education, they're going to expect, you know, beautiful public spaces and all of which is going to require, you know, levels of public investment, that are going to require greater redistribution of wealth, etc, etc. These are not potentialities to be realized, they're problems to be, you know, managed and contained. And the efforts to contain them are obviously a a big part of the the wider backdrop of this film. Progress is, uh, is is a symbol of tragedy for their way of life. Like for an ex for an example, the the roads, especially up in the northern area, is always a symbol of progress. But to the north, but to the Indian people, it has been a, a symbol of impending tragedy for their own traditional way of
0: living. Well, I think that about covers it, folks. I <laughs> uh, just want to uh, tell folks a little bit more about the viewing experience. I mean, it is uh, simply a series of vignettes. There isn't one really consistent through line except for, as you put it while we were watching it, an indictment of the basic premises of the society that we live in. So some examples of the scenes that we see are we see Trudeau going to meet with Nixon in the United States and receiving $46 million in loans and military aid from the United States. This is juxtaposed with newspaper headlines of United States atrocities abroad. As you said, Vietnam hangs over the film. There's a section with an indigenous activist, Philippe Awashish. The film draws some parallels between the indigenous struggle for recognition of language and cultural rights with the Quebec struggle for same or at least tries to build some solidarity between the two groups.
1: And this, by the way, is a really fascinating scene because uh, one of the things that they're discussing, I mean, a number of things come up. I mean, one of them is there's a young man who's talking about how, you know, he had to go off reserve and leave his family in order to get a high school diploma. Something else that comes up, which is particularly interesting, is a hydroelectric development in the James Bay area. This, if you know the history of Quebec at the time, is very significant because hydroelectricity and the nationalization of uh, hydroelectricity was a key part of the Quiet Revolution. And it was one of the ways that the new political culture in Quebec carried out the early 1960s slogan, Maître nous," Masters in Our Own Homes. You know, it wasn't just a slogan. It was a call for greater popular control, and in this case, of, uh, of energy and, and hydroelectricity. But because the film's underlying premises, you know, despite the fact that uh, much of it is channeled through kind of the prism of Quebec nationalism, because that was the dominant idiom at the time uh, on the left in Quebec, fundamentally its outlook is universalist and internationalist. So I thought this scene, which is just, I mean, the actual scene itself is pretty nondescript; is just a series of conversations. But there's a remarkable power to it because, as you said, the film is drawing an implicit parallel between, you know, the struggles of the Quebecois for the recognition of their language and culture and the struggles of Indigenous peoples, who it's also observing are having their rights transgressed, you know, by the Quiet Revolution, by these big public works projects like the uh, hydroelectric development in James Bay. It's a very memorable scene.
0: So I leave this movie with two sort of broad takeaway questions that I don't have answers for. One of which is, why don't they make movies like this anymore? And the other of which is the fervor of the opening union rally that we see in this movie. Why has that never been successfully recaptured, well, in Quebec, but also throughout Canada? The first question I don't have an answer for. I don't know how related this is, but I mentioned Jean-Luc Godard earlier. He's the most famous kind of revolutionary filmmaker. And, you know, he was making those extremely politically radical movies in the early 70s. And then in 1980, he came back with a film called Every Man for Himself, which was his return to mainstream commercial narrative filmmaking. It had movie stars in it. And that's also a movie that I guess you could say is, if not anti-capitalist, it's, it's weary of capitalism, but it's about three characters trying to find some sort of personal liberation in this enormous crushing society that they live in that's the direction that his career went now the director of this film uh, didn't have as happy a fate as Godard uh, you were you were looking up his career and apparently he he died in poverty
1: well on the Canadian Encyclopedia uh, the, the entry ends with uh, Gru did not go back to filmmaking he ended life forgotten and poverty stricken
0: I get a general sense that a movie like this if it were made today a movie that questions the basic premises of society well certainly in 1980 when Godard made Every Man for Himself, I think it would have been regarded as sort of like childishly naive or would have been regarded as, aren't we kind of over this by now? And if it were made today, I don't know, I feel like something similar might happen. I mean, the, the most obvious and superficial answer is that the market didn't support movies like this. I'm sure there are a huge number of factors that are behind that. I just mourn the lack of any attempt at anything like this now.
1: Well, because it's not just that uh, you wouldn't see a film like this now. It's that the, the possibility doesn't even... Like, no one would try to make a film like this now. And if you did, it wouldn't really be legible, I think.
0: I mean, maybe maybe somebody would tell me that something like this is happening on TikTok right now. But, but I, I don't think <laughs> I don't it don't is. Think that, no. I don't think so. And in fact, I think it's like... No, no, TikTok... It's a personal branding exercise. Yeah,
1: TikTok isn't like no. Something like TikTok, you know, it's it's an atomized you know medium. Right, right. You know, you ask two questions, and I think they're related. I mean, the first is why don't people make films like this now? And then, secondly, that trade union rally that looks to me like it's at the Paul Souvey Arena at the beginning of the film. You know, like why don't we have that now? And I would give kind of the same answer to to both questions. I mean, you don't have the same kind of cinema because you don't have an organized working class in the same way. You don't have a powerful organized left of the kind that existed in the 1960s and 70s. Why don't you have those things? Well, because the Pierre Trudeau's of this world got their way. The project of containing this, basically by bludgeoning the labor movement and implementing fiscal austerity, I mean, that worked. It took decades to work, but eventually it did restructure society. It restructured or in many Many cases just destroyed all of the industries that sustained industrial unionism and the much thicker trade union density that came along with it. Such that, you know, by the time the 1990 you know, by the time you and I were born, and but by, by the time I suspect, you know, many of the people listening were born, the neoliberal market society isn't just one horizon. It's not just, you know, one possible political project among others that might also succeed or be realized. It's the only horizon. Well, we return to this again and again on the show, and you know. One of our listeners recently joked, you know, why don't they just make the whole podcast out of the end of history? Which I liked. But I sometimes am a little self-conscious in talking about these themes as much as we do on the podcast, in engaging with them as much as I do in my writing. You know, it's very difficult to talk about the fact that we have a much narrower political imagination today and a much narrower social imagination than we once had. Um, And you can see that if watching a film like 24 Hours or More, which, as you said, I think rightly, just you couldn't really make a film like this today. No No one would imagine a film like this today. And certainly nobody would have the same attitude about it if you did that, you know, Gilles Gru clearly did, or that figures in the French New Wave had, where this isn't just about making a film to convey ideas. There's a deeper belief that the medium itself can be revolutionary. It can inspire action. It can raise consciousness in a way which is going to help produce transformative social change. That's not something that people can really fathom anymore. But to return to what I was saying, I mean, I think it can sound a little bit vague when you're talking about something like a political imagination and just saying it's narrower. Because it can seem to follow from that, that the solution is, you know, equally vague. It's like, well, we just need to broaden our minds, man. We need to just, like, get back to thinking big. That almost sounds like it's channeling, you know, the neoliberal attitude towards social change, which is, like, again, a very atomized one. It starts with each of us. We just got to raise consciousness. You know, before you know it, you sound like the, you know, we charity people shit. You sound like the people on We Day. All of which is to say that, you know, when we talk on the left today about the narrowing of political horizons, we are actually talking about something with discernible and identifiable material roots. This is not some vague or nebulous thing. It's not that for reasons which are just kind of impenetrable and unknowable to us, societies decades ago had some kind of grander spirit or grander ambition. The expanded democratic horizons of the mid-20th century didn't come about because of some nebulous you know, spiritual awakening or something like that. They came about through popular organization and struggle. They came about because for a fleeting few decades, human beings created societies where enough people did not have to think only about their own subsistence, that they were able to question the premises of the society around them and formulate alternatives to it and work in solidarity with others to try to bring those alternatives about. You know, I guess we've talked about this a lot on the show before, but this is why I think really, the, you know, the great legacy of the neoliberal project. I mean, of course, it's a whole suite of economic policies. Uh, we talked about some of those earlier. You know, designed to suppress wages and lower public spending, increase the power of capital uh, over labor, et cetera, et cetera. But in many ways, I think of the most important legacy of neoliberalism is captured in Margaret Thatcher's famous phrase about there being no alternative. The fact that you couldn't make a film like Twenty Four Hours or more today really shows how much that project has succeeded and the film in turn gives us a glimpse into a time when it was possible to envision an alternative and i think makes the case that we badly need one again
0: everybody knows that the dice are loaded everybody rolls with their fingers crossed everybody knows the war is over everybody knows the good guy's lost